Hey folks, we had some minor problems with our audio issues on today's episode, so please bear in mind and give us some forgiveness. This was one of the first episodes that we recorded almost six months ago, and we've improved our technology since then. Thanks for your patience. Welcome to the Legendarium Green Team. I'm your host, Kip Tan, and with me today are Aerodandis. Hello. And Little Red Book. Hello. Today, we'll be discussing The Uplift War, the 1987 science fiction classic by David Brin, and the third published book of The Uplift Saga. It received both the Hugo and Locus Awards for Best Novel and was nominated for The Nebula. It's my personal favorite of the first three, and I'm thrilled to be able to talk about it with all of you. In case you haven't listened to our episode introducing The Uplift Saga, we're starting our episodes with Star Tide Rising because we believe it's where the series really starts to shine, but the first three books can be read in any order. We'll be starting this episode with general notes about the setting and themes of the book without spoilers, then we'll transition into full spoiler talk with a warning. Okay, so let's get things started off. First impressions, how did this book hit you? Who are you going to recommend it to? What other books did it make you think of? What were like your favorite parts without spoiling anything? And what parts would you mention to try and hook people in? So I'm going to go with something a little unconventional. I'm going to say if you like Dances with Wolves, you'd probably like this book (laughs) because it has some very similar things going on. I have two favorite scenes, and I think I can say this without spoiling, and Kip can yell at me if I spoil. There's a (laughs) scene where a dude runs down a deer, basically. And this is Mm. actually something that people can really do. Like, human beings do this. Or did this. I this book is it. where I learned this. Yes. But as it's a kid. True. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is true. Yeah. It's absolutely true. And so I love that scene. I also, there's some really cool plants that basically all the plants on the planet seem connected. And I thought that was a really cool concept. I don't, yeah. So those are my two favorite yeah. things. And that, and that was hard, by the way, because I like all of the things in this book. Very <laughs> <laughs> <pretty> much read. <laughs> Um, I'd say, gosh, who I recommend it to? Anybody who likes reading, recommend it to them. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, it's look when you read Uplift War. Well, first of all, like I guess background-wise, Bryn is like a—he's a scientist. That's his background. But then also on top of that, unfairly, he's also like this super brilliant writer, and he has this ability to write seriously and humorously and very engagingly while still packing in a lot of real science elements in his science fiction book. It's really an incredible achievement. It really, really is. And I want to go back to an earlier point you said, Kip, about him being a Hugo Award winner. I mean, this is the the 40-pound trophy of Hugo Award winners. Do do you want to go over kind of like what books were also published in 1987? Oh, I don't want to go over. That's up to you. Okay, well, put it this way. Go go and Google books that were released in 1987, and you're going to be wondering, this is the book that won. There was a lot of really good writers. Gene Wolfe published that. Bear published. There were a lot of really headers that published that year, and the Uplift War is the one that won it. So, I mean... To me, that's the recommendation for it. In terms of favorite scenes, I'm just going to uh, highlight one character. I'm going to say any scene with him, Fiben. <laughs> any scene with Fiben, he is awesome. He's to me, he's the hero of the story. Anything with him, if you see something that says Fiben, that's my favorite part. Interesting. 
He was my favorite character too, by the way. Really? Yes. Okay. I I'm an Athaclina fan. I love. Uh, I'm not. I'm not saying she wasn't great. She was great. I'm just saying. Uh, look. Oh, okay. There, there's many characters in this book which you can fall in love with. There, there's five men. There's Athaclina. There's Utha Caldane. I've got a soft spot for him. He's great too. Yeah. Uh, there's there's Galet Jones. There's Sylvie. <laughs> yeah. I, oh can, oh my can, gosh. Can I say this? Can I say this because I think this is important? Um, yeah. This is one of the few, very few books where even when you're in the uh, in the point of view of the, the antagonist of the story, there was <gasps> never a part of the book that I'm like, gosh, can we skip this? Right. All of no. it was fascinating. All yeah. of it was engaging. All of it was super fun. Yeah. I yeah. love the, the uh, both the suzerain of propriety and the suzerain of cost and caution. Yes. They are so much fun and getting in their head and having the court intrigue. Yeah. I mean, if you like the court intrigue, this book is for you because it get it, getting inside the Gubru heads was so much fun because they they really do have like an alien way of thinking. Yep. And it comes through. And it's not like, oh, big bad evil, like <laughs> Oh. stupid protagonist who's like a hate sink. No, it's like you can come and understand their point of view. Right. And like 100%. they seem to have some logical goals and a society that although it's built on some fairly conservative principles and I say conservative with a soft C there like they right. uh they're very very tradition oriented still is fascinating and different and alien. I was actually reminded of the triumvirate like the Roman triumvirate. Yeah. The, um, That's good. good call. Julius Caesar and Pompey, and I can't remember the other dude's name, but they actually <laughs> had a very similar relationship where they were all vying for power, but working together. I don't know. That's what I thought of when I read it. <laughs> to Kip's point about them being alien, this is going to go back to, I guess, something I think I'm going to be mentioning a lot. It's really Bryn's writing, the way he writes them on the page that makes them seem so alien. It's just a, like a small point, aside from like the way he kind of structures it in the book with like kind of like the, the words kind of fall down on the page like stairs. Whenever the guru use action verbs, it's always in triplicate. Yeah. So yeah, it's always whatever. Like when you open a door, you open a door, you you bring it forth, and then you also whatever whatever a third verb for opening is. So they always do I that. Have, that huh? I said I think I have a quote. Just a minute. Keep talking. I definitely started writing all of my school essays in like triplicate style for a while when I read this as a kid. <laughs> that must have been really annoying for you. I was going to bring that up later, but uh, yeah, no, I absolutely started being like, wait, why use one adjective when I could use three? Oh, Lord. I would have pulled out my red pen and just like <laughs> slashed two <Too many> words. Hmm. <laughs> And I'll also say, like, you know, uh, flipping back to, like, the main client species in this book are the chimpanzees, Star Tide Rising with the Dolphins. And I think the way, first of all, the chimpanzees, the neo-chimps, as they're called in the book, they're totally different than the dolphins. They're completely different species. They act very differently. Just the way the, the I guess, the cream of the crop of that species, the ones that we see most of, Fiben and Galet. The story itself is so much fun with them because Fiben, he starts off, fighting in space and then he's a spy and then he escapes a prison and then he's a um he's in a bare knuckle brawl fight i mean 
he's in all the cool scenes in the book. Almost every single cool scene, he's in it. And that, that's part of the reason, just on the pure, just, yeah. hey, action part, that's what made him, like, the most engaging character. So one he, of is, things- he is our action hero. He's yeah. our spaceship pilot action hero. Mm-hmm. Agree. Yeah. So one of the things that I found fascinating, you were talking about um, the humans and the dolphins and the chimps. So music is something that really highlights this point. So the chimps are really into rhythm and the dolphins are really into melody and the humans are both. They, they use both. And I just yeah. thought that was a really interesting way of dealing with the difference between dolphins and chimps. So they're related, but they're different. And you can tell that humans have, have um, influenced them both. But I just found that like a fascinating little touch to both books when you read them together. Anyway. And uh, you, you mentioned Athecleena before. Like, I don't want to like cut out the other really cool part of the book, which is um, there's a no kidding. There's a there's a very obvious joke in the book where Athecleena, um, that's the <laughs> the ambassador's daughter, is saying, you know, she's surrounded by all these chimpanzees, and they're like, and all the humans are captured, and she's like, oh come on, we need to find this way. Uh, what's this word you guys use for? A, uh, where you fight, but like you're kind of sneaking around and not letting people know kind of what you're doing. And they never say the word, but the chimpanzees all start laughing hilariously. And it's just, oh, come on. That, that's... That was so great. And I'm not going to say the word. You guys should know what the word is, yep, right? Yep, yep. Don't say but the word. <laughs> that's what, I mean, like, A, that, that's a, an example of, uh, of Bryn being a very clever writer. But B, it also kind of shows the kind of relationship that Athecleena is able to develop with the, uh, the chimpanzees and how she's able to lead them. I, don't know, I found all of her stories and really engaging and kind of how she was able, went from like this bratty teenager to uh, a war leader. And it was, uh, it was really cool. I, I really like that part of the story too. It's definitely a big part of Bryn's writing in that he, and in, in his, his humor as well, that he writes something and then leaves the punchline for the reader to like infer. Yeah. Which I enjoy. I definitely enjoy that. I'm like, okay, you don't need to spell it out. You gave me the pieces. I see the punchline. I'm laughing at it. And you didn't have to like lower your writing to do it. Right. And he makes tons of literary references that you can enjoy without having to necessarily know what the reference is. He references Isaiah, Shakespeare, you know. Yeah, Isaiah, the, the, the biblical book, Isaiah. <laughs> and when we talk about the Timbrini later, he does this very subtle thing with his writing where he's making a meta point to the reader through the words of the Timbrini, which I caught it like on this reread. And I just wanted to stand up and just, just applaud Bryn for his writing ability by doing that. And um, I'm just going to leave that as a teaser for when we get when we talk about the specifically. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're we're going to talk about the linguistics later of this universe and how the Timbermi have this uncanny ability to cut to the the truth of difficult and complicated topics and how to like crystallize it into a single word or sensation, which is another skill that I really admire both of the Timbermi and of Bryn. One of the other things that I thought was really cool is that the Timbrini can rework their bodies, like, just as they need them to. And so, like, Athelkina, she tries to make herself look more human so she fits in, and the chimps can respect, not respect her more, but 
find her more acceptable. And her dad, whose name I'm not going to try and say, Uthakal thing, is right? walking. He, <laughs> sure, he's walking through a swamp, and he like makes his feet like webbed feet, so it's easier for him to walk through a swamp. And I just thought that that was kind of a neat little thing about that particular alien. Yeah, because the Timbrimi are naturally like semi-amphibious. I think. I think, I think they're supposed to be marsupials, like like they slash. Are yeah, they are. They are. They're definitely marsupials, but I think they also they originated with the ability to like naturally swim, whereas someone like the Thenanin did not. <laughs> well, I mean, so since uh, Red, I think now is a good point to to I guess kind of veer away, I guess a little bit from the action. And by the way, there's a lot of action here. A lot oh, of really cool I had, action. I had one one more general point. Yeah. Um, so I really loved what seemed kind of like an exchange student relationship between Robert and Athaclina. Oh, yeah. That was one of my favorite parts of this book where like, she's learning how to be more human and he's learning how to think more alien and they combine. Yes, that yep. totally is something that's going on right now. <laughs> well, for sure. well, I guess one other thing too, the book gets dark, but it doesn't dwell on it because there's a part of my book where the humans do something they shouldn't have done. And so they do what they do to cover up the evidence. And, but they don't dwell on it. They kind of talk about it, it gets done, and then they move on. So it's not like Bryn doesn't deal with real issues. He does, but he doesn't dwell on it. I guess if that makes sense. Yeah. And at one point, there's this child who's separated from her parents due oh. to the war on the planet and that part really got to me this time on reread more than it has in the past yeah no you're I right don't I, I don't even know if i can share the part that got to me the most because that might be spoilers that might have to be well, spoilers we'll just have to wait for spoilers on that but it's a it's a really fun book <laughs> but but like that separated child is like fairly easy to enjoy if you don't want to get that deep into it or like dwell on the darkness that child is not unhappy or not super unhappy definitely not on the surface she's a very sweet girl she's She's a very sweet sweet girl very sweet girl little april Wu. yeah she takes her responsibilities seriously because she has responsibilities yeah i guess last general point robert um that's the main human character male human character he's tarzan tarzan he's literally tarzan guy (laughs) no 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 no. he's playboy tarzan (laughs) There you go. He's Playboy Tarzan. I mean, Tarzan was kind of a Playboy. He, he's better. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on to style. What style points do we have to make about the Uplift War? Uh, can I make one about the Timbrini now? Yeah. No. Okay. And I am okay. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm actually going to quote passages of, of the book to kind of show. So the Timbrini, they're known as the practical jokesters of the universe and they do like good jokes okay and they'll like they like the three stooges and all kinds of different jokes but it's a little bit deeper than that Brynn does a very clever job of seeding what he what the Tim Brindy really are throughout the book so this is and these are all from the viewpoints of the Tim Brindy. so this is first with the the ambassador and I'm just going to, two sentences, he, he was talking to the human, Megan O'Neill, she's the planetary governor. And he said, soon was such a wonderfully ambiguous word. One of many reasons he treasured Anglic, the wolfling's tongue's marvelous untidy, untidiness. 
And this is really important because then later on, much later on in the book, um, Athaclina then says, here, she was trying to, yeah, she couldn't explain to Benjamin what she was up to, the, the chimpanzee. And she says to herself, no, she can explain to Benjamin that she had insisted on bringing the gorillas along, on making them part of the raid as a step in a long, involved, and very practical joke. Okay. Oh, I love this that line a, so much. Okay. But it's important because this goes to the, the ambiguity of the English language. If, they, if he had intended it to be simply a practical joke, the worst practical joke would have been placed earlier in the sentence and the very would have been excluded. The right. very practical implies that practical is meant in the other sense of how can I achieve my goals? How can I achieve my goals? In other words, is it practical? Can I, can I succeed at it? And you see that then work later on at the very end with the cow thing. Wait, wait, wait. Are we doing spoilers yet? I won't, I no. won't say anything else. I, I won't say anything no. else. But besides, I'll say that, you know, he said, oh, what interest compounded and multiplied. What a fine jest to pull upon your, your proud parent. And I use all those examples to say that this is Bryn as a writer at his finest saying, hey, look, I am telling you guys English is a squishy language and it can have multiple meanings. I am then going to use the English language in multiple ways to tell you that the Timbrini, yes, they are good at making, uh, making jokes and yes, they're funny, but they're also very ruthless about their jokes. Their jokes are intended for an intended effect to advance them forward. They're very practical-minded beings, practical jokes, but also practical-minded. And then at the very end, when they quote the joke that was pulled ended up uh, working way better than he ever intended, it worked way better not because it was a joke against him, because it had the intended practical effect to a much greater degree than was originally planned. So I wanted to kind of make that point to kind of talk about Bryn does a very good job of kind of seeding a story with all these little clues. He never tells you, but he sees all these clues and it's there for you to see that there's just different layers to look at these, uh, these alien species throughout the book. I definitely still find layers in Bryn's writing every time I read. Maybe some of that's like, I forget about some of them in the years between reads, but I still feel like I'm discovering new things that I've never thought of before every time I read these books. And it's, it's lovely. It's how you get reread value. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So I read the book and then I started a reread. I have not finished it yet. I definitely will. But there are definitely things you notice on your second read that you don't notice on the first read. But he also has things that are just like, so Fibbin is upset and depressed and he just goes, sits on the bench and thinks about how all he wants is a, a banana and a beer. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like so funny because he's uh, totally playing into stereotype. And, you know, there's a part where he's watching a lightning storm and he's needs to be inspired. And it talks about the lightning. It talks about what he's doing. And then it says, he looked up and saw another electric ladder. And I just love that image of lightning being an electric ladder. And I thought it, it just this, like. That storm sequence is very visual. I like it. Is. It, it really is. But just that, yeah. that particular phrase was, he's, he needs to be inspired. He needs to rise up. And he sees an electric ladder in the sky. It's great. I mean, it, yeah. Uh, to your point, it was cinematic before. Writing cinematically was a thing in, in these kinds of books. Yeah. 
and used correctly, like cinematic moments. The whole book is not written in a cinematic style, but there's parts where he focuses in and really writes a scene that you can see. And right. I, that's a major strength. While also keeping it under 800 pages. <laughs> yes. Era approved. <laughs> it's, 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 it's on the outer limit of, uh, well, for a single book, it's about 600 pages, which is, I appreciate. I do appreciate that. Yeah. And it is a completely self-contained story. 100%. Yeah. It's complete standalone. You could read this book and be completely satisfied with it. You do not need to read it. But you were mentioning the guru before. I think we made the point earlier, but they're so alien, so alien from how like we think and interact. And he's able to put that language down in, in human words, like through their dialogue to show how they're alien. And yeah. that's really hard. <laughs> I mean, that's a really hard thing to do. And he was able to really successfully do that. And uh, tip my hat to, to David Brin for being able to do that. And he does it in Dark Tide Rising, too, the way he writes the aliens. They all feel, like, different. Yeah. So. One of Brin's major strengths is that the aliens are not just humans that look different. Right. They don't think like humans. They don't come from a history like humans. They are alien. And when your aliens are aliens, that's good. That yes, is good. Yes. <laughs> yes, for sure. And that actually, you know what, it's interesting you say that because it actually goes to something that Tim, Tim Brady Ambassador mentions. It's a theme throughout the series, but especially in this book, where the ambassador's like, oh, God, these silly humans, all the answers are in the library. Why would you not want to use the library? Again, Bryn never says it outright, but part of the human success, in the, or I shouldn't say human, the chimpanzee success in um, Uplift is the fact that they don't use the library and have to rely on what was learned on Earth. And we can get, that, get into that more in the spoilers, but yeah. it's really interesting that it's just, it's, he doesn't tell you. He just shows you and lets you figure it out. And I love that in a writer. I really, really love that in a writer. Yeah. I've read two books recently, which <laughs> it felt like some of the characters were just straight up saying what the author wanted us to learn from the book. It kind of ruined the book for me. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. Like, I'm laughing because I, I saw you venting <laughs> on Discord. <laughs> <laughs> oh no it's one of those books the, the character just came out and said like oh everyone is valuable and blah 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 and <laughs> like this is the correct moral code that i want to preach in my book and it was coming out of a character's mouth and ah uh, fine <laughs> i guess this book is for small children yeah but the nice thing about this book is you can enjoy it on the surface and have so much fun, but also you can think about the thoughts that are being expressed, and it's not in your face. That's exactly true. I mean, uh, the first time I read it, I was a teenager. I didn't see anything deeper than the story itself, and I just I, I thought, this is the cool version of Planet of the Apes. <laughs> the first time I read it, <laughs> this is the cool version of it. Man, I love this book. And so when people talk to me about Planet of the Apes, I'm like... <laughs> Read the Uplift War. Like, the apes are much cooler than the Uplift War. So, anyways. It's a fun resistance war story. Yeah. It really is. Oh, yeah. I mean, so, but but then again, as you reread it, as you get older, there's more there. Like, for example, I mean, I've, I've noticed before, but, like, since I'm more into uh, um, the, the writing now and the reading aspects of it, 
I mean, he has this whole thing about the alienness of the human species because we use metaphors. And mm. stop and think about that for just a second. Can you imagine thinking in a way that does not use metaphors? No. I mean, the alienness of the aliens itself, thinking that metaphors are strange, was a really kind of like hit you in the face moment. But it's also kind of a really cool way for Brim to kind of say, hey, I'm getting ready to play with the English language. <laughs> Strap on the, uh, the seatbelt and we're going to go. You know, He's telling you, hey, metaphors and the ambiguity of the English, I'm going to be playing with this throughout the book. And I love that. And it does. And we'll get into that. We'll get into it. <laughs> we need to move to spoilers now. We've been gushing we, for yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, no, we're moving on. Okay. Let's talk let's talk spoiler free about the setting of this world, about the planet Garth. We're introduced to the fragile world of Garth, ravaged by an ecological holocaust, but in the process of rebuilding. What did you think of the setting planet and what was your favorite part of it? You've already started about the vines red. So the vines, they move minerals from one place to another as they're needed. They almost seem like they're pre-sentient, the way they work. But they also, it's like, they're also like blood vessels in the body and like a, the way they move things around. So it's like, is it one vine or is it, I mean, like there was a part in my yep. head that was like, is it actually just one big plant? It's all over the planet. Kind of like quaking aspens on Earth where they right. all connect via their roots and they're all like one big organism in a forest. Or like mold, I think like, or not mold, but mushrooms. Like there's, like yeah. you see a bunch of little mushrooms, but there's actually like a huge thing under the ground. Slime mold is, can be giant. Slime mold can cover like hundreds of acres. Yeah. So And be, it, and be one cell, which is cr the crazy bit. You can train these plants to do different things. You can, I mean, I, it was just fascinating. And I loved them going in the jungle and living in the jungle too. That was just fun. That was yeah. that fun. So we've got what like was your favorite part, yeah? the jungle setting. Um, I like Port Helenia. I like this uh, little outpost on the mainland, which is the in-between between the populated archipelago, which we never really get to see, and the wildness of the mountains. And it's the, the place where these two populations mix. And it's the place where the university is. It's the place where the Gubru take over. It's, uh, it has the spaceport, which was a fun place to get to see. And later it has a whole bunch of Gubru fortifications and buildings. That like walled city feeling was a very, walled occupied city feeling was a very interesting setting to unpack. No, that's a good point. Um... Because it's kind of like it's, it's the the drop of civilization in in the wilderness, right? Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah. For me, it was the uh, how it became a fragile ecosystem, kind of like what happened to uh, to the inhabitants that were there before, and kind mm. of why the humans ended up being allowed to inhabit Garth, and how Garth is really a backwater in, in the whole scheme of things. Because through the setting, just through the setting only, Bren is able to communicate so much about the humans place in galactic civilization, what the galactic civilization values, what's important, what's not important, and how the different alien species that he has throughout the book, how they view Garth in relation, either they say it expressly or it's implied through their action. And I think that whole setup, because he's making this whole sub point, subtext point 
about ecology generally. He does it through this completely alien planet who, to Red's earlier point, it almost functions as a singular organism. So I thought that whole, that whole part of it was really fascinating. I think Bryn is definitely able to get points across through the setting that other authors would maybe just... I think a lot of authors would make a setting, they'd be like, okay, this is cool. This is a rainforest, which is a fun part of Garth. But like, it would just be a rainforest. And it wouldn't have this like bits of history and critique of galactic culture and like this rare edge case, which is worth investigating. Mm-hmm. of of a holocaust yeah yeah and he does that in this book he does it in star tide rising he does it in the uplift storm i think it's something that he does frequently and well great i mean he's one of those authors that says okay if you read i'm presuming you're smart enough to understand what i'm writing you know yeah and he just he throws it at you and he doesn't he doesn't feel the need to explain it like there's obviously yep. I mean, there's something to explain but like the other stuff He's just, he's going to lay it out there and he's going to presume that you're going to figure it out. And, um, and he does that but, really successfully in the setting. But he doesn't do it for the level one content. The level one content, he's like, okay, I will set out the storyline. I will set out these characters and I will explain enough so that you do not have any problems following the plot or the setting or the characters. You will have no problems with that. But if you want to dig deeper, it's there. The level two, the level three, it's there right under the surface waiting for you to dig in. Yep. That's very well said. That's very well said. Okay. Now let's go full spoilers. Is it time? It's time. (laughs) Come on, we're all waiting. Let's go. Let's go. Come on. It's time for Red's recap. (laughs) (laughs) So, folks, we're about to get serious and spoilery. Dolphins finding a mysterious flotilla inspire a galactic war. The Gubru, bird-like creatures, invade Garth, hoping to gain dominance over human territories. The human governor and the Timbrenny ambassador send their kiddos into the woods for safety. A Chimled spacefight fails as the Timbrenny and fellow Thinian ambassador crash land. Humans are held hostage by a mysterious gas that takes only, well, mostly only, them out. Gubru assume control of Garth, and the few free Terrans are left on their own in the forest. Internal fights within the Gubru contingent, internal fights within the guerrilla war- warriors in the forest, internal fights within the Chim living under the Gubru, and a government in exile. And all are being led by the nose by a clever Timbrini ambassador who is pulling a very practical joke on the entire galaxy. Can I say something right now about the Neochims? Sure. Bren makes a very, again, subtle, because subtlety is especially. So this is set approximately approximately 500 years from the 20th century, you know, give or take, you know, 20, 30 years. And he mentions repeatedly throughout the book, something like, you know, to have lived in humanity's awful dark ages must have been terrible or frightening, or he mentions it several times that like, it's, it would be really bad to have lived in humanity's dark ages. So to me, this is a really subtle point because the dark ages for us is about five, 600 years ago. Right? Huh. From our perspective, that's five or 600 years ago. This book is being written five or 600 years in the future. We are the Dark Ages. Like, yep. that's, that's point one. Where we're at right now, we are the Dark Ages. And I think the other point he's really trying to emphasize here is in relation to the book, the Neochims are where we are right now, more or less. That's kind of like the perspective he's putting in because 
if you look again, this is what I was really struck by this book, the way the Neotunes by and large act, and we'll, we see this with Max and Galet and Sylvie and with Fivem, they act very human. Like, they're chins, but their best responses ended up being more in line with how we would act today. And it's the humans in the uplift war that actually, at the end of the day, to me, appear a little bit stranger than the Neochims in relation to, to us today. So that was what I was struck by. Except Major Prothecool Thorn, who is a throwback. Oh, yeah. Man, that did. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that also goes to, I think, a point Red wants to make. But because there's a lot of talk in the book, man... We are so glad we put this racism stuff behind us and this bigotry stuff behind us. We are so much better than we were before. We humans, we are awesome, awesome, great people now. And we're taking care of our chimpanzees and we're taking care of all dolphins. And we are so much better than the galactic civilization. And then you have this colonial marine major, who I'm not going to try to pronounce his name, who's like, yeah, no, like, uh-uh. <laughs> I'm going to be as racist and bigoted as I want to be. And that's it, right? And no one has stopped me. Right. No, I mean, and there's a whole thing where he, they basically mutiny on him and throw him in a, (laughs) throw him in a cage. He's hanging in a cage from a tree. (laughs) To be very clear, who mutinies on him? The chimps (laughs) or the gorillas. Gorillas are the ones who do it, aren't they? The chimps and gorillas, but it takes Athaclina to do it. Ah, well. To spark it. Is that why she's No, this isn't okay. Uh, I mean, it, it's one of the reasons she's my favorite. But no, that that's I, like on the list, but not the highest. The highest is the way that she got to get Robert on Eagle. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> the highest reason that I like Athaclina is because she pulled an awesome joke on everybody. And she had the Proud. restraint. She had the restraint to do what she needed to do, not what people wanted her to do. That's fair enough. No, you're right. It's true. I I like her a lot. I, she's just, Fibbin's my favorite. <laughs> if, if, yep. if we're going to talk about favorite parts for Athena, I would say it was actually one of her very last acts as a general. Yeah. Like, that, that, was, that really was, I had totally forgotten about it. But when she did that and kind of gathered everybody together, and I'm like, Wow, that was just an awesome moment. It showed the way she grew as a character from the beginning of the book. And I think we can all be clear, she was a brat. <laughs> she, was she was a complete <laughs> brat at the beginning. She, and was, then a the self, she, she was self-righteous. Yes. And she, she calls herself judgmental. a prig, I think. I call her a prig. I don't know if she does, but she is a prig. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, at the end, she's like, you know what, I'm our lives aren't as important as this planet. And if we, we have to die to protect the planet, so be it. And I'm sorry, that, that, was, that was a really, really, that, that to me was like, wow, that shows how much she's grown. Yeah. Um, it shows like, it really shows kind of like where her priorities are and how she was, she was able to assume the responsibilities of an adult team branding. Like her art was really, really cool. So I, Kip, again, it's not that I don't like Athena. She's awesome. I think there are a lot of really good characters here. Yeah. And they all kind of get their moment in the sun. Yeah. yeah Fibbin, is, Fibbin is awesome. I, I will fully agree with you there. He's a great character uh, and very enjoyable. I mean, all and he his, wants is a and his sections and are great. The only, 
But also, this is another reason I don't like Fibbin. <laughs> is because, and this is very similar to Rob on Inking Out Loud, but when like there's something interesting that I want Galet to say, Fibbin interrupts her and doesn't let me learn it. <laughs> what I like about Fibbin, because I... <laughs> I see this with people with people a lot, and it's usually the really, really smart people who do this. He is so self-deprecating, and he puts on this big act that, oh, shucks, I'm just this poor country boy chimp. I can barely read and write, and uh-uh, uh-uh. Like, he is extremely bright, knows exactly what he wants and what he needs to do, and his whole aw shucks attitude is a complete act. I mean, a complete act. He repairs a spaceship that's falling to the planet while he's in it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> in time for him to crash land pretty close to where he needs to be. <laughs> well, and when they're escaping, he and Sylvie, and he figures out that this is a trap because of smell, which I thought that was a really yep. fascinating thing because the birds, the goober did not test smell. But that's not as much for, for humans, but that is something that is so important to like Terran animals, but even to yeah. us. And but not like, to birds, smell, interestingly. To, yeah. And I just thought that was a cool little touch and he figures it out. And then he's like, nope, we're going this way. And he's going to tear up a fence, tears up a fence guy, <laughs> sneaks out and collapses. <laughs> and I just, I love it. Anyway, let's he, go back to the, let's go back to the fence because. Okay. Yeah, let's go back to the yeah. fence. Because the fence, to me, that was the part where Bren made the point of, okay, these are, like, the chimpanzees, they're alien species. They consider them, they're different. They are not human, right? And because the way he breaks the fence is he does it in a very chimpanzee way. Mm -hmm. He does not do it the way a human would. He does it the way a chimpanzee would. But he does it, he consciously makes that decision. and. Right. I, there was a fascinating way to have it presented. And I think it speaks, he's trying to, he's trying to pack in a lot with that scene, I think. What do you guys think? Well, Fibbin even thinks, he thinks, while humans were getting smart, we were getting strong. He has that thought. I definitely agree that there's this part of the book which emphasizes the different evolutionary histories and heritage of each species. And part of that in chimpanzees is this fascination with lightning and storms and rhythm. And they've built up this whole bit about the thunder dance. And it's become enshrined as this cultural phenomenon, which is one of the few bastions of sexism that humans allow the chimpanzees. And it's also one of the areas where chimps like first started to feel this instance of pride when the first big chim drummer came along, yeah. Igor, whatever. <laughs> and Fibbin says every chim knows Igor's name because he was the first time that we saw, okay, we're not just a portrait of humanity. They're not just uplifting us to be copies of themselves. They're uplifting us to value what we value as well. Right, exactly. I think the line was, we realized we were also becoming what we wanted to be yeah, or something like that. And this is a good point to bring this up. This is from the chimpanzee's point of view. From the patron species point of view, I, I highlighted this because this, to me, said everything about 
where the chimpanzees and neo-dolphins are and kind of why part of the reason why everybody kind of wants to put humans, quote, in their place. This is from Uther Calvin, where Carl was all offended that the chimpanzees wouldn't let him in to like the, the spaceport. And then he said, Uther Calvin says to Carl in response, uh, the neo-chimpanzees may be the finest clients to appear in half a mega year, with the possible exception of their cousins, the neo-dolphins. Shall we not respect their earnest desire to do their duty? So it's clear from the patron's point of view that the chimpanzees and dolphins, or this book, The Chimpanzees, they're something special. Like they're a really, really special client species. And part of me wonders if this ties into the larger system of uplift and patronage across the galaxy in that generally species aren't allowed to get as close to sapience as the chimpanzees were when humans started uplifting them. If generally they're snapped up way before that point, before they have even uh, like a tenth as much potential. Yeah, I think that's probably true. If like all across the galaxy, planets are being combed and cataloged and they are just snapping up these species at the first hint of sentience, at the first hint of the ability to think for themselves. And from then on, they're being molded into whatever the patron species wants them to be. Right. I mean, when you look at the Kikwi, is that what they're called? Yeah. Yep. The yep. Tribe. What? Oh, no. I'm thinking of the Goober's client species. The Quacku. Um, Quacku. The Quacku. Quacku. Oh, my God. Quacku. <laughs> anyway, speaking of playing <laughs> with them. giving it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I got it before, but it just it cracks me up every single time. When you look at them and how much they are actually just basically quadruped reflections of the Goobro. So, yeah, I think that us... And completely subservient. Oh, it's kind of gross, actually. I mean, not that that the humans are dealing with the chimps perfectly, but they're at least trying to incorporate the chimps' desires as well. Yeah. Interesting, you mentioned the Quacku. Did did you notice that the Quacku, they don't triple the verbs, but they double the verbs. I did not notice that. They double the yeah. verbs. So they were made, so the Gubru obviously made their intelligence to mimic the Gubru's intelligence to reinforce your point. But he does it very subtly. That, and I agree with every, everything that both of you said, but I also think that there's a very strong element of, of politics with the patron and client relationship, a very strong point. And it's mentioned a couple times throughout the book, and it's always done through the feminine's point of view. If you recall the prior species, the prior patron species for Garth were the Nahali, or the Nahali yeah. were demoted to client species, and they were now the client species of the feminine. So it's not like, oh, you're pa- you've reached this ability to, to now travel on starships, you're now a, sa- a sapient species. No, it's also a, a status symbol and a... Um, a way to enforce politics. And this is further reinforced by the fact that the Thenanin have been arguing apparently for a while, uh, pre-book, that uh, the humans would be better off being a client species for about 10,000 years before they were allowed to truly be a patron species, even though they had already uplifted two, two species and had achieved a star status. So clearly- the, Which honestly, I can't argue with. Well. 
<laughs> Why? Like, like Why? I can't argue. I can't argue with the central tenet of their argument, which is humans need a bit more polish. But, but why can't the humans do it themselves? Uh, I believe that the humans should probably do it themselves. And and I agree with that. I disagree with the Theninin that like they should t- be taken under Theninin control. But uh, the I do think be- that humans like obviously need a couple thousand more years polish. <laughs> well, I was going to say that Theninin could probably use a bit more polish themselves. Yeah. I mean, honestly, uh, they're... Uh, so they've got those awesome head crests. They they do. They have awesome head crests, and they're completely impervious to sigh, which is bizarre to me. But they're so. Yeah. So that was like the, a very interesting partnership with called yeah. and just say it for me, Kit. Uthakalvain, because <laughs> he's Uthakale is trying to. <laughs> this is why I didn't want to say Uthakaling. <laughs> is using his sigh. He's just trying to draw Kalth's attention over. Just look over here. He sends a little glyph over to him. Look over here. Look over here. And the dude's completely impervious. And then there's this, basically it's a squirrel. I'm going to call it a squirrel. It wasn't, because, but this little creature and he just reaches out to it and there's this moment, but it doesn't have the sigh aspect. It's so weird. Anyway, I thought that was an interesting partnership because they have two very different sets of abilities and they complement each other and they're but they're enemies i i think that little moment with the creature is a a great one because it highlights the difference that uthic halvain would ensnare like a small creature with a with an empathy glyph with an understanding of like i can see your little thoughts and emotions and like look i can replicate them and show you this crafted version of what i think you want to see whereas and like kind of mind control kind of um whereas cult has absolutely no side sense but just through motions literally only through his actions can he prove himself trustworthy to that little creature and it's because he has this this sense of wonder and reverence for nature and every little creature in existence that he's able to do so. Yeah. Can I piggyback on that? Because I think you're right, Kip. But I think it was also Bryn's way of saying there's a difference between the true believers and the fanatics in the galactic universe. The feminine are true believers. They truly believe, hey, look, saving a planet is a good thing. Uplifting species is a good thing. Now, they may be kind of super conservative in other ways, but they genuinely believe in the rightness of their actions. Whereas the Gubru, by contrast, they're fanatics and they're using it for their own selfish ends. They're using galactic civilization to achieve their own particular ends. Well, they're actively causing ecological destruction on the planet by their behavior. And then they lock up all the humans and the humans are the ones who manage the ecological cleanup sites. No, we're just going to throw them on an island. We don't care what kind of damage we're doing. Yeah, this brings up a question that I was going to ask. This book has triads of characters very often, bring it, like mirroring the guru, triplicative adjectives and verbs. There's triads of characters in this book. Kalt and Uthe Calvin are a definite pair. Who would you add as the corresponding viewpoint to make it like an oppositional triad? Oh, I'll just use the prop- propriety. That's what yes. I was going to mention. That is who I would add too. 
because you have to look at it from his point of view or her point of view, depending on what time I we're talking about. An, does, he, um, does he or she ever become a he or she? Yes. I don't remember. Uh, okay. She becomes a queen at the end of the book, but is lonely because Beeman Talon got killed. Um, <laughs> well, the first cause and caution got killed too. Yeah. Sad story. It's a anyway. very, it was a very sad mating story for the suzerain of propriety. And I think that that's what they deserved because although they may have had sincere and well-founded concerns for the propriety of disrupting the ecological management stations, they were unable to, well, really to stop the devolution of decades of work by the humans. They left Garth a worse place than they found it. Yep. Yeah. Well, that gets into a point because humanity is generally viewed with contempt. I mean, let's be humanity is not viewed as like the super awesome species. Yet, yep. these same alien species acknowledge, man, these humans, they are wizards with these ecological disaster areas. And wow, they really have these really awesome species that they've been able to uplift. So there's this strain of contempt while they reluctantly acknowledge, hey, humans do all these different things really, really well. So Contempt and jealousy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, at least to me, it's very clear in this book that, that Bryn is trying to make the point of, look, the progenitors, the original uplift species, they would have been a lot more like humans than all these other uplifted species. Because yeah. the point end of, hey, you know the way the gorillas are picking their, their patrons and you know the way the chimpanzees are acting? That's a lot like how the progenitors uh, uplifted. Than, than how we act nowadays. So I think when, to your point about jealousy, I think that's why a lot of these wolfling species are ending up getting wiped out because I don't think the current patron classes, their fanatical viewpoints can accept somebody else achieving the same status without going through the process and handle it. They, they just cannot fit their worldview. Yeah. And again, just to mention the point that galactic moderates actually make up the majority of galactic civilization, but they're so bound up in procedure and protocol and, that they, and they act so slowly that none oh. of them are able to save humanity. Yeah, that's... None, none of them are, like, willing to, like, step in and do anything. So, like, this legit made me very, very angry at the beginning of the book because the Scythian ambassador, who gets yep. stink-bombed by... <laughs> By the yep. guy whose name I can't say. She's like, oh, we'll go consult. And like, <laughs> meanwhile, <laughs> they're getting bombed. Like, you can go consult. That's great. <laughs> yeah. We're not going to be here the, when you get back. <laughs> there's like an exodus from Garth, yeah. the start of the book. And like, all of the Galactics are like, let's leave. And Uther Kaldin's like, mm, I got a better idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it was just... Which is why Tim Burmese, the only like real ally of earth clan yeah exactly but it's it was just so i was just so angry and i felt the same way during star tide rising because they send this one little scythian spy and who's just like hanging out and she's like really legitimately frustrated because she's like the dolphins are going to be dead by the time you decide what you're going to do <laughs> like what get your heads yeah. out of your butts basically uh, isn't that the point i mean yes. isn't that isn't that how it actually works in real life that like, you know, 
there's normally big corporations or government takes their time to do stuff. And by the time something happens, it may be too late, right? Yeah. So there's get off your butt and go do something because a through line throughout this entire book and throughout the, the entire series really is ecological maintenance. It's a really, really big deal. And Bryn's talking from the, the perch of 1987 saying, hey guys, we got to start taking care of Earth. We got to start taking care of other species. We've got to do this. And we can't just sit around and be the galactic civilization, sit around and just wait. To your point that the Earth clan is following the progenitor's guidelines in regards to the uplift process and that they consult with their client species and they act with what they consider to be the best of intent for them is something that kind of gets brought up later at the very end when they're, they're at the uplift ceremony and they're changing the uplift consort and they say, you can choose to reject uplift at this point. You can choose to ask to be put back the way you came. The progenitors insisted on that. And then like kind of inside, I, I forget inside whose head, it might be the Sarantini like grand uplift, the grand examiner inside their mm -hmm. head. They say, though that's rarely permitted. Permitted was the word that was used. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was. I remember that. And the acknowledgement inside the Grand Examiner's head that, oh, we've strayed from the progenitor's ideals. We've strayed far. Yeah. That struck me. And I completely agree with your point that humanity is indeed taking one of the most moral views towards uplift. And it is also important to note that cults faction uh, is not representative of the Thenanin at large. Right. But That's maybe true. now, thanks to Uthakalzin, it will be. Well, and can I touch on an earlier point? Because I think this is going to bring up something that, that Red really wants to talk about. Sure. Um, you're right. Compared to the rest of galactic civilization, humanity has the, the moral upper hand. But let's talk about how humanity actually treats their client species. Let, let, let's talk about that because in the whole scheme of things, if, if this is the best that galactic civilization can offer, yeah. maybe we could be doing uplift, right? Um, Let's talk about the low bar that is uplift morality. <laughs> Let's talk about Sylvie. Let's well, talk about Sylvie. Let's talk well, about the fact that like 60% of Chimptum has less than a green card. Yeah. So wait, 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 wait. Can, can, can we go ahead and just reset and just briefly explain the card system and then go into sure. it? Okay. Okay, so, so, we're the in, card... so we're in spoilers. We're in spoilers. There's this card system that goes from red to white, with red being you can't procreate at all. White, you can uh, procreate with anybody you want to. And humanity strictly regulates who, who gets to procreate and who doesn't and on what basis and whether or not you even get to keep your kids. Proceed. Okay. Including <laughs> mandatory sterilization for most of the population. Yep. And mandatory birth for a huge chunk of the population yes so all the white cards so the white card chimps are expected to have three children at least before they're 30. yeah especially white card women yeah who have to have them naturally which is let me tell you i mean i have kids i love my kids i'm glad i had them that's a serious toll on your body the yep. process of pregnancy is and I don't care what future technology you have, that is a serious thing for your body to go through. It is. 
And it's not comfortable, by the way. <laughs> it's very uncomfortable. Wouldn't imagine um, it would be. <laughs> oh, one of my kids kicked me so hard they woke me up one time. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's talk about Sylvie. This is the part of the book that most upset me. Like, I was seriously sobbing. So she is not supposed to... She, I'm trying to remember exactly how she ends up getting pregnant, but she get she gets pregnant, and she's told that her kid. She was she was carrying a fetus which had been genetically engineered by the Uplift Board as an experiment, right? Which and is it, which is the lot of her life, which yes. which is the and lot of cards. everyone under a green card, right? Yeah, exactly. And so she she gives birth, and she's told that this her child is probably not going to work out. And but we're going to send it to Earth and give it a few more tests. And meanwhile, her mother is dying, and she's told she can go to Earth with her child, or she can stay home and take care of her mother. And there's this forced separation, and she has to choose between taking care of her mom and taking care of her kid. And then by the time her mom dies, her kid's already been adopted, and she just decides that it's better to leave her kid where he is because he's just going to be better off there. And he's already got an established life, and she doesn't want to interrupt it. And it's just like... Turn the screen even tighter. And they lie to... Yeah. Her her son is actually on a higher card. He's a blue yeah. card. Yeah. So, I don't think they intended to lie to her, but they were like, your son is most likely, like when the testing is complete, going to be a probationer. Right. But I don't think it was an intentional lie, I think. But the fact that they jumped to conclusions about this little baby and basically forced a separation because there was no one to take care of her mom. And uh, God, that was uh, anyway, that was one of the cruelest things about the card system and how it works, that it does that. It seems great on a big old societal level to control the population and make sure the genetics are correct and blah, blah, blah on the very personal level, what it does to people. And there's a lot of people who want kids and there's a lot of people who don't, but it doesn't matter if you have a card, it dictates whether or not you're going to have children. Yeah. There were 20 chims on Garth on the whole planet that didn't have to have an uplift person give further counseling on their, right. on their children, on their genetic choices they want to make with reproduction. Which is, they had been pre-approved, right. which is already like, oh, it's such a patronizing thing. Yeah. Which is, you know, the name of the system. But <laughs> And the chims are in an entirely different way from the dolphins. The chims have this constantly at the center of their culture, of their thoughts, of their relationships. They have this card status. Fibbin at the start's like, I have a blue card. Does this marriage group only want me because I have a blue card and it would be like easier for them to have kids with me? Yep. And like, that's a real concern. Sure, first world problems, I guess, but real concern. Am I loved for me or am I loved because I can reproduce? Yeah. I mean, and reproducing is like, that's why we're all here. <laughs> it's, it's a real drive, <laughs> is what I'm saying. <laughs> I mean... I, I mean I mean, there's two points here that I think are, are important. One, the earlier point I made before, the chimpanzees are a lot more like 20th century humans than the 25th century humans are to us. So just I'm going to put that placeholder there to kind of think about. I will argue a couple points on that, uh, including uh, speech lock. 
I agree, as a thing but that you does know, not really affect modern yeah. humans. Have you ever got? Have you ever gotten so mad that all you could do is curse? Have, have you ever no. gotten that mad? I have. I, I mean, have too. <laughs> I, even you get so mad or frustrated, or you're just in tears and you just cannot express the words anymore. That happens. At least it's happened to me. So it's happened to me too. Um, Kids. Maybe you're a white. I've never had kids. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> kids um, never had kids. <laughs> I've never had kids. I've never had a wife. <laughs> so the, the, I would make that point one, just just to put that out there for consideration as to how we humans would have been treated if uplift was real and aliens appeared above the sky, like you know tomorrow. This is how we would be treated, the way the chimps are, at best, at best, right? Yeah. The second point is that I think Bryn's also making a point of look. Human history is, we've done this before. We've yep. in a soft way with socioeconomic status. If you've achieved a certain level of education and economic standing, yeah, you can marry anybody you want, but isn't the nice girl who or boy who graduated from college across the street a lot better choice than the boy or girl who's a mechanic? <laughs> I mean, that, that's the, the, the soft cultural stereotypes yep. that are out there today. Like, so uh, are you going to be a doctor? <laughs> and like, and, and like, what do they do for work? You, you always get the question when you introduce a significant other or you talk about them. It's like, right. you got to marry a doctor. Right. Yeah. Well, and I was going to say, this is something that I remember I was dating this guy. And there was a whole bunch of reasons why I shouldn't have been with him. But I said something really snotty about how he wasn't going to college. He was studying, literally, he was going to be a mechanic. And I said something snotty about that. My mom's like, you know, that's a really narrow-minded view. Mechanics are important, and it takes a certain kind of smarts to be a mechanic. Yeah, it's not the same as being a lawyer. It's not the same as being a doctor. But it is good, hard work, and it's important work. And we, like you said, we have the soft bigotry of somehow, like, an electrician isn't as important as a doctor. Me too. And electricians make a lot of money, by the way. <laughs> and for that, I'm going to talk about Max. Oh, Max. Wait, can, 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 I make one, can I make one very last point? One very last yeah. point about uplifting and then we'll go on. Um, I actually have another uplift point too, by the way. Ooh, we're, we're doing the whole one more thing now. <laughs> yeah, we are. <laughs> okay, Let, let's talk so, more about uplift then. Let's talk about more <laughs> about ideal patron-client relationships. and. But let's not forget about Max. Max is awesome, okay? Athaclina makes this really important point that I think goes to what we're talking about you know, the patrons are selecting what traits are important or not important to the species that's being uplifted. And she thinks all too often their patrons edited whimsy out of them as an unstable trait. Oh. Think about that. Yeah. Right? I totally. Yeah. No, all that too hit often. me hard. Yep. Um, and think about that. Anyways, go ahead. Go ahead. And, that, and that's why the term Tim Brimmy have this desire to protect Earth Clan. Because, because they, they have whimsical. more whimsy than they've ever seen. Yeah. Yeah. And and the importance of, at least for humanity, the importance of having, well, even, even the galactics, um, they have their myth as well as their science. And how important that is to how they focus their life is a really big theme in this book, I think, anyway. I would like to bring in the example of the, uh, now I'm going to say something I don't know how to say, the titlil. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The uh, Timbrimi's client species, yes. the little otter-like creatures that are also oh. pranksters, which yes. also 
brings up what I wanted to say earlier. So anyway, finish that. No, sorry. Um, <laughs> I got excited. <laughs> and how the Titlil choose the Neo-Dolphins as their uplift consorts as a practical joke and how the Timbrimi accept that as just like a wonderful celebration that the Titlil understand what it means to be part of their clan. That they have that whimsy and that humor and that practical jokerishness. And, and then Athaclina's like, I saw across time and I saw that that was a uh, like a presentiment of the streaker crisis, which is like the central cause of these books. The precipitating incident, seeing that neo-dolphins are going to be at the center of this galactic crisis. I want to see more of the titlil. I want <laughs> With their cute little otter hands. I, w- I want to meet that comic that Athaclina remembers in her flashback that like she was like, he writes doggerel. Yeah. No, that, that's one thing. I, I, I like how Brim, with a very few brushstrokes, is able to kind of give you a vivid picture of a species. So the other thing I wanted to talk about was the whole consort patron. And it seems to me that this has been put into place because of what was done on uh, to the... The, the coughing name that you can't pronounce species <laughs> from Star Died Rising. So it wasn't put into place because of them. Uh, the Karenk. It wasn't, <laughs> it, it wasn't put into place because of them, but it was strengthened. The rules around it were strengthened. Like they've gone through various phases across the billions of years of galactic history. Sometimes they're stronger, sometimes they're weaker. And it depends on like, how the Uplift Institute feels that they've been doing. If no major crises have happened in a long time, sometimes they relax the rules, and then those relaxed rules cause crises to happen, and then they tighten them up again. But I just thought it was very interesting that the client species can basically choose a different species that's not part of their clan to come up alongside and help protect them. And the end of the book is so touching because the gorillas choose the Thenanin to be their primary patron, but they ask humans to be their their consort patron. Is that what it's called? Well, humans and neogen. Humans and chimpanzees. So they're going to have just the idea that a client could say, hey, we do want to go forward, but we also want these other people to help us. And it would create a situation where people where species could become like what we're trying to do with the chimps in the book, become more themselves instead of more of a reflection of their patrons. And it also shows the necessity of having at least one ally in galactic civilization. <laughs> There's that too, yes. <laughs> because without the Timbrimia's allies, the chimpanzees and the dolphins would have consorts that are better. I mean, the only other option would probably be probably be an enemy of humanity yeah well like you either got to be an ally they could have tried to choose one of the like moderate clans but maybe they can't in the plant species or something like that but yeah no, yeah bring the best choice yeah yeah i would say like to, to all of those points this goes back to uh my view of the patron client thing is, is politics based on what we know of uplift through the uplift war if we just look at earth so by the book, we know gorilla, chimpanzees, dolphins. But if we look at what they consider to be pre-sentient species, I mean, we would have to include dogs, cats, yep. all kinds of monkeys. I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on. And if you recall, like part of the reason that they had to uplift the gorillas in secret was because there was a treaty 
where the humans weren't allowed to uplift more species. So yep. basically, Earth is like this this right planet that everybody wants to fight for, kind of kill up humans, forget they ever existed, and have all these really awesome client yep. species to, to to uplift. So as a matter of just bare knuckle politics, because more the more species you've uplifted, the more status you have, and so. There's some bare knuckle politics being go, uh, going on here that's being disguised as, oh, these wolfling species. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. In fact, they're not. They're also uplifting dogs on Earth. <laughs> There's this like really quick scene in the book where like this Earthling dog is like really confused, <laughs> and it's talking about its thought process. So we're actually humans are basically breaking all the rules. <laughs> well, I think humans had started some experiments on dogs and cats in the uplift universe before contact okay but then after contact they were forced to abandon those efforts but oh, so not all dogs or cats like went fully back to the way they were oh okay i just which is its own funny. little tragedy it is it makes me sad yeah because the dog was so like close to understanding it was like a really 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 smart toddler but it was just really confused by what was happening to it. And I can't remember something about a doily. <laughs> but compare and contrast it to what we know about like the Tandu from the previous book. I mean, the Tandu are borderline abusing their client species to, to achieve a desired result, right? And so... I mean, yeah. I don't think it's borderline. <laughs> I okay. think it's, yeah. it's pretty... Yeah, full on, full on abusing. <laughs> okay, well, the, the well, point being that, yes, like we sit here and talked about the awful ways humans may have been treating chimpanzees and they are but relative to the other patrons in the galaxy humans are borderline saints now that excuses their actions but it kind of puts it in context and i think the context is important humans are doing the best they can while also adhering as a way with to galactic standards of uplift It's made very clear that the humans do not system. Most humans don't like the restricted reproductive rights, but those are basically requirements of galactic civilization. And galactic civilization thinks that they're being insane by allowing chimpanzees and dolphins as much leniency and rights as they do, they have. Yeah. So let's talk about Max, man. Let's Max. talk about Max. Let's let's Max talk Dolphin. about the unsung hero. Oh my God, he's a Gosh darn hero. The only point I wanted to be, make about Max is that unsung is the important part here is that we have all these chimpanzees who we don't see. They're off, off screen. But you probably have more than one Max out there yeah. on Garth who are yeah. acting as a true sapient species and doing things despite, like, let's, let's be frank, that the discrimination they're receiving is not being considered a, a, a sentient species. And I just love what Max represents. I'll let you guys talk. Well, no, that that was one of the things that was most disturbing is that the goober basically told the chimps that they weren't sentient and they took away all their free will and choice and stuff. And it was just so upsetting. So Max gets captured and he very cleverly thinks about Garthlings in order to further the practical joke that the Tim Brenny ambassador starts. He's like, I don't want to think about Galatia. I don't want to think about Febron. I'm going to think about Gar- Garthling myth- myths while they're trying to read my mind. And I just loved it. I just loved it so much. And he's getting tortured to death. And it's so sad, but it's great. And he broke free and caused a whole bunch of destruction before he finally got captured. Yeah, yeah, he did. Good on him. He thought through his position very logically. He almost yep. succeeded. 
he was only stopped by one of our major antagonists of the book, Iron Grip, and only by his insane genetic modification, which granted him much increased strength. And he's basically a mechanic. In fact, I'm pretty sure he is a mechanic, isn't he? Iron Max? No, no, no. Max. Max? He's Max. He's He's a a, a green card for sure. He's a retainer. Maybe a yellow. Yeah, he's a retainer. He's a retainer. He's a man of many trades. I was about to say, I think it's important that Max is classified as a green card. I mean, if that's not, if how Max acted is not a sign of somebody who to procreate however he wants, I mean, something's wrong with the system. I mean, the, the, this. Yep. I mean, he acted very logically. He acted ruthlessly. Necessary. He acted with humor and with honor. I mean, you couldn't ask anybody to, to do more than what Max did. Really, I mean, he went above and beyond. He died for it. I mean, he was, yeah. he was a really awesome character. Yeah, and I just love that his last dying blow was, like I said, he was thinking about Garthlings, which yep. don't even exist, just to screw with them one more time before he goes. And he I, was la- as he died, he was laughing. Yeah. I view the card system as broken as basically any standardized testing system, which is yeah. very broken, in my opinion. <laughs> uh, yeah, but it's... It's like one of those things. It's like, like we has have... has some value, has yeah, some exactly. like use, and is kind of required by galactic civilization in this case. So I can excuse its existence, but it's not a reliable classification unit that tells you much about any person. Sylvie was not always a green card. Max is a green card. Fibbin is a blue card, and then a white card. These things change. They get like who someone is gets revealed and it changes their class status. And that is ideally, it's not something that should have to happen. Yeah, right. Exactly. The other thing about Max that um, I liked is that there's a kind of another through line through the book is what makes each species different? Like what makes them, for lack of a better word, unique? On Max's end, it was he was able to retain his sentience despite the extreme circumstances he was in. Yeah. Oh, uh, incredibly, yeah. Yeah. Fiven, on the other hand, realized that the way to accomplish his goals was to get more in touch with his animal side, right? His more primitive side. Yep. So I think that that's a very interesting thing. And then, like, I find that how all the chimps acted, and then contrast that with, let's say, the Timbrini and the humans. The Timbrini are known as the, they can adapt to anything. They're practical jokers. And we see how their bodies physically adapt to everything. And they do all that. And... It's really interesting how he tries to differentiate the, the uniqueness of the species. And I've been struggling with, so Bryn makes the point that, that humanity's uniquenesses, um, they never give up. We have a lot yep. of endurance and we never mm-hmm. do all this. But that's kind of not what I was left with after this read. I know that's what he's saying, but to me, it was the human's adaptability. They went back and used crossbows and made bows and arrows and just made do with what they had. They used the metaphors that they had from their past and didn't rely on the library to succeed. And I don't know if Brim was trying to say something more than that, but when you're talking about Max, I kept on being struck by all of human species, the dolphins and the chimpanzees and the humans have this ability to adapt to, to dire circumstances and to persevere through it. That I don't know what he's trying to say something, but it's just something I really noticed this time around. Okay, this goes into my favorite point that I wanted to make. Okay. I'd like to deep dive into the linguistics of the world 
and make an argument about the way that Bryn looks at language. I don't think it's controversial to say that he seems to be an adherent of the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, that the structure of a language determines the native speaker's perception and categorization of experience. Bryn categorizes species partly by the languages they speak. EarthClan has Anglic, Chims have Handtalk, Neofins have Trinurian Primal, Timbrimi have Galactic 7 and Glyphs, the Gubru have Galactic 3, the Thenanin have Gal 6. Did you feel the importance of these languages in the writing? And what do you think Bryn is trying to say about them? Red, do you want to go first? Oh no, I'm so unqualified to talk about this. Okay. But this is, here's, some, here's something I will say. I loved that the chimps were able to fool the Gubru because they could hand talk. And that's just something that wasn't even in the Gubru's brain. That they used sign language to defeat their supposed betters. That they could have three-level conversations. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I thought that was great. Yeah, I think Bryn's math, like, this is one of the things that it's really a strength of his that he uses haiku to express dolphin trinary um, or the um, the triple verbs for the gubru and so on and so forth. I think um, he does a really good job of showing the alienness of thought without having to explain it. He just shows it to you by how they act and, and the words on the page about, like, what they're thinking or what they're saying. So I think that does a really good job of that. And to the point about, like, for example, the languages that are more direct, like Gal 6 or Gal 7, then an internet is very dour. And they're very direct and very, like, relatively logical, right? So they don't have the ability to understand metaphors or understand jokes. And the reason that the Timbrini are uh, is apparently through their ken, through their glitz, right? Whereas humanity's language is so squishy, right? That they can mean multiple things, even though they're only saying one thing. I think the alienness of thought is really expressed well through the species and the way they express themselves. There's a part of the book, I think Athaclina is talking, where she's like, yeah, or maybe it was Robert. Everything's just boring sanity when you're thinking about things in terms of like one of the galactic languages. There's no, yeah. basically there's no poetry to it, right? It's just, you know, why does a star shine? Well, it shines because of this scientific process. There's no, well, the sun god rose. No, this is what it is. It's a very direct, <laughs> it's a very direct language. So anyways, those are my unformed kind of thoughts just spilling out. Yeah, Athaclina is like, I've never looked at my change notes like they're mice burrowing under my skin because I've <laughs> right. never had metaphors before. And this is unsettling to me. And then the ways that she talks about and thinks in metaphor starts influencing more and more her internal patterns, such as her glyphs, including, the, I cannot say this one, the glyph of indeterminacy postponed to Tutsunikan, something like that. Sure. We'll Don't that. ask me. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that Bryn is saying that these galactic languages are so fossilized and stultified, kind of like Newspeak from 1984, that they, yeah, no, they, they've locked galactic society into these different ways of speaking. And even Galactic 7, which is the Tim Burmy favorite because it's the most like fluid, flexible, and lyrical of the galactic languages, Bryn notes that the Timbrimi, they inflect the syllables in a way that kind of makes it sing-song. That seems very Timbrimi to me. They're a, they're a species of space poets. But the Timbrimi also have the interesting phenomenon of their glyphs, where they can take psychological 
or basically psychic emanations and craft them into this form of psychic poetry. And they use that to express their complex beliefs. And it's like very central to their culture because it allows them to say things that wouldn't, they don't fully have a corollary in the galactic languages. It's their own thing that they've invented. And although they've used the galactic languages to structure their thought, they have this other thing too. And it gives them like a degree of flexibility, a degree of tricksterdom. But I also found really interesting that these glyphs, they tend to express very true concepts, very interesting concepts, very deep, very self-aware, very uh, psychologically mature concepts. Like your mother can just instinctively hold up the dark reflection of yourself to you and teach you as a child that like, right. no, you're projecting right now. <laughs> like that seems useful, but it also is, is just true. Whereas Anglic, Anglic is a language that has ways of expressing anything, true, untrue, complete falsifications. It's got metaphor, which insists that things are the same, not that they're just like each other, but no, they are the same. And that linguistic shift, which Uthakaldin delights in, and Athaklina has kind of forced upon her, not entirely like with her own consent or will, because it was kind of an accident. Yeah, it was just... She went into Robert's head and like accidentally they gave pieces of each other to each other. And Athaklina learning to deal with the inspecificity, with the the wolfling way of thought, I think is is a major point of how Bryn looks at language and how it can control who you are. I agree, and to buttress that point, Athaklina becomes, relative to other alien species, more creative after her encounter. She does. An yeah. Encounter with Robert. Like significantly more, more flexible. Creative. There you go. Flexible. I like that word better. Yeah. Yeah. She becomes um, even more adaptable. Yes. Mentally adaptable. Mentally yep. adaptable. Because that, that's to your point is that the, uh, these galactic civilizations with their language are definitely, I like, I like that word fossilized because they're unable, but there's a level of incomprehension regarding the, the human species and, uh, and all the client species with them. They look at them, we say something, and it's literally like, humanity's talking gibberish to them. They just don't have the capacity to understand. And that has to do with the, the language structure. That's a really good point. Well, I was going to say, and I'm probably, this is probably a garbage opinion, but <laughs> I'm going to say it anyway. Um, it's kind of like Latin, because mm-hmm. once Latin stopped, went out of common use, it got super codified, and now it's, it, it's a dead language. That's how you kill a language, is by codifying it to an extreme point. Not that I, I'm a total believer in grammar, Oxford comma me, but what I'm saying is, is that when it stops being used in real but, life. But these languages know, are I'm, being used in real life I know, constantly. I, I know. Here, it, was look. A, it was a, like I said, it was a garbage opinion. I have a garbage opinion. Look, no, no, it's not garbage. <laughs> not garbage, not garbage. It's not garbage opinion. Here, here's what I'd say that, um, do either one of you speak, speak uh, another language besides English? Uh, Vaguely not, Spanish. No. Okay, so. So I'm fluent in Spanish, and I, I, I'm not doing that to brag. I'm doing that to say, to, to buttress Kip's point, or hell, like in my job, I'm a lawyer, right? So in both of those instances, when I'm talking to my family in Spanish, like I'm thinking in Spanish, and the way I think in Spanish is different than the way I think in English. Like it's a very different thought process. 
it's more secured, it's less direct, at least when I'm, uh, at least when I do it. Uh, when I'm at my job, right? You think English is vague and ambiguous? Like in my job, every word's ambiguous. It's not that way <laughs> when I'm, <laughs> when I'm just kind of like talking to my family or talking to my friends, I don't do that, right? It, but you put on your hat for your profession and all of a sudden, like the way you understand things is radically different because the language you use for that profession. I, I, just, I use lawyer because me, but like whether you're a scientist or a doctor yeah, or whatever. Yeah, I, I put on my science hat when I'm writing like a, a report or a paper. And all of a sudden, like you're, you're thinking in a completely different way, right? Because you're using the language of science. Yep. I think it's a very fascinating point that you brought up, Kip, and I agree with you. And um, I think that I agree with you. I think that's what Bryn's trying to say by expressing these different languages. But again, it's one of these things where he never tells you this. He's showing it to you, right? And then you've got to, it's there, it's there to be seen. You just got to, yep. it's a fascinating point. It's absolutely there to be seen. He does tell you the point about the metaphors because he wants you to get that. Oh. He helps you along the way, but he never says his point. There's only one part at the end, Galit, when he does her speech to, to everybody at the end. That's his one preachy moment of the entire book. That's his only preachy moment of the entire book where he kind of <laughs> makes the point of, hey, look, we got to save the earth. We got to save you know, the planet. We got to be more careful about things. Uh, that's the only time he ever gets preachy. The rest of it is exactly to your point. I will entirely agree with that. The end of the book gets a little preachy. <laughs> that's it. You know? um, and actually, uh, here, and the, here, look, I'm going to read. Do you guys have the postscript and acknowledgments? And you're, you're not my audio. I did, yeah. Okay. He actually makes a point to talk in the postscripts. Here, I'll just read this uh, really quick. In order to teach an ethic of environmentalism, it is now well known that our very survival depends upon maintaining complex ecological networks and genetic diversity. If we wipe out nature, we ourselves will die. That's just one paragraph, but he's, he has like a whole like page about the ethics of environmentalism. So, Hint, hint, <laughs> this is a big theme of uh, the Uplift Worm in particular and the Uplift Saga in general. Yeah, no, those acknowledgments are good and they're short. <laughs> <laughs> I only bring it up to say that we're, we're not reading something into existence that isn't there. He's making the point yeah, and then yeah, afterwards he says, that. hey, this is the point I'm making. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Kevin. The end in general is a little, it's a little pat. There's more loose threads tied up in a positive manner than I remember having been tied up in in the past. Oh, um, don't be a killjoy, Kip. Come on. Sometimes it's nice to have an ending like that. A little, little bit of a killjoy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I agree with you. It's it's a little pat. That's okay. I do really <laughs> enjoy how even Cult, the most serious of the Thenons, is like, wait, I have to be allied with Earth Clan now? But like that risks my race's extinction. And Uther Kathleen is like, now you get what I've been in. <laughs> We're going to be allies now, buddy. <laughs> Welcome to the club. And let's talk about that just incredible practical joke that got played on the entire five galaxies. Basically, Uther Klenning. <laughs> I try, I try, I try. You try. Um, I try. He lays all this false... He knows about the wolfling, you know, mysterious. It's almost like a Bigfoot legend, basically. The Garthling, yeah. Yeah, the Garthlings are basically a Bigfoot legend. And he knows about it. And so he lays all of these false clues to make 
the entire galaxy think that the gorillas are, in fact, the Garthlings. Gets humanity out of trouble <laughs> and and creates this beautiful chaos and gets the gorillas a great patron. And I love it. I love it. Red, Red I'm going to disagree a little bit. I don't okay, think fine. the Kelping, well, no, 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 I agree with everything. I don't think the Kelping knew the gorillas existed. No, he, he absolutely did, not, did know, not. He did not know the gorillas existed. He did it as a false trail to kind of confuse the five galaxies. And oh. then to kind like, of use the guru to get them to waste and, money looking for it. Right. And, and then, then the at the, gorillas were there. Oh, okay. At, at the end, he's like, oh, what a great gist you pulled on me at the cleanup. Oh, wow. You made my joke be real. This is the best thing ever. That's kind of like what, what that was his point at the end of, wow, you took, oh. my joke, you took it to 11. This Guys, is great. I'm dumb. I'm dumb. What no, interest no. repaid. Yes. And I missed that part. To, I thought he knew the girl well, existed. It's to the earlier point I was making about it's a practical joke. It's been like, yeah, it's a great joke. It's also a, a very practical joke in that now the thin men are allied with the earthlings and the Timbrini and they have more firepower on their side and will enhance their chance to survive. It worked as a practical matter to enhance their, their species survival. Yeah. But he at least started the joke for sure because he wanted them to chase down ghosts. Uthakalin absolutely started the joke. And then Athaklina, when she first went down onto the Nahakiri level to find out if he lived or not, she got a little glimpse of the joke and then she like started to play into it. And then mm-hmm. Max had no idea of the joke and then he played into it. And when he was in the hyperspace shunt, he projected out to the gorillas and out to Athaklina. And that was also when Athaklina had her Suustro Thune storm with Uthakalding and took from him, except part of Uthakalding's went into like, self went into the gorillas. And it also yeah. went into Robert too, didn't it? I think Robert got part of that. I don't know if Robert got any of it. Um, I, that was possibly. Yeah. I don't think so, though. I think, I think he did. I think he did. Okay. Part of it. Very possibly he did. The, I mean, Athaclina and him were connected. If yeah. the gorillas got something, then he probably got something, too. Anyway. Well, I feel dumb because I totally thought that he knew about it in the beginning. But whatever. <laughs> but that's what made the gorillas then storm the mound. Yeah. Is what and then, Yeah, exactly. Is It was Max. Yeah. yeah. And I'll put you this way. The first time I read it. I don't recall it anymore, but I bet I thought that, the gorilla, that he knew about the gorillas too. It's just you have to reread it a couple of times before you realize that part I quoted earlier where Athena said, oh, I'm going to make this a very practical joke. That's when she was saying, I see what my dad wants to do. I'm not going to take it and I'm going to take it to 11 now. I'm going to use the gorillas and I'm going to make them be the mythical Bigfoot species on this planet. And it fooled everybody because remember the Gubru they were like, yeah. oh, crap, this is fake. We're going to have to use the Neochims in their place to kind of make up for all the lost yeah. space that we have now, right? So it worked, but then it worked even better than Uther Calcum even wanted yeah. to work. Yeah. So, I wonder if I – because, like I said, I haven't gotten to the end on my reread. I wonder if I reread the end now. I would have realized it. Oh, well, whatever. I misunderstood. And it all played out in front of all of galactic society because the hyperspace shunt was active. Yep. It was beautiful. I mean, the end is just 
I'm sorry. I love the end. I don't, you're right. It is Pat. I don't care. I just don't care that it's too bad. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't care. It's happy for Garth. It's happy. This is a Rafo moment, but here's what I'll say. I'll take it, Kit, because this is the, the happiest ending we're going to get. Like, you know, this is the where all the threads get wrapped up. Okay. It's the end of this trilogy. Right. So I'm fine yeah. with it. I'm fine with it. Right. So, yep. I mean, Sundiver, not a happy ending. Star Tide Rising, not really a happy ending. Uplift 4, happy ending, finally, yay! Yeah. It can be Kip's favorite. Yeah. <laughs> what about favorite scene? Favorite scene. This is going to be uh, interesting. It's when Athaclina and Robert are sharing their like little psychic moment together, and Lydia McHugh is like off to the side, not knowing what the hell is going on. <laughs> 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 and Athena's like, yeah, we got something you can't share either. Cool. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. <laughs> what about you? What about you, Red? And that's such a little moment. <laughs> well, it is because it's so it's so it's so petty, but it's also awesome. uh, yeah. I said my favorite scene too. It's probably the prison escape. Probably. Awesome. But that lightning storm. Yeah, the lightning storm. Mm. And like I said, it had that one really great little phrase in it and it, about the electric ladder. I just love, I don't know why, but that just really is in my brain. What can I say? I'm a weirdo. <laughs> let me ask, let me ask this for, for, for that, for that particular scene. So by the, I got the impression that five, at least mildly empathic. Yes. Do we think I that there's any sign involved in the lightning actually in prison? Or was that just pure happiness? There absolutely was. Yep. Okay. Yep. Absolutely because, was being impacted by Max again. Yeah, because I, I could not. Be, I mean, I, I read it and I'm like, is he hinting it? Because again, Bryn doesn't tell you anything; he just shows it to you, right? And I couldn't figure yeah. that out whether that was a hint or not. So good. Oh, okay. I was wondering. They do say like the Gubru were testing their machinery, and they let loose wild surges of probability. Yep. Uh, and no. I think that one of those surges of probability took form of the place of a lightning strike exactly where Fibbin needed it to be. Yeah, okay, I'll buy that. I'll buy that 100%. Yeah, that's good. I'm going to go with a simple scene, but I think that one that kind of presses that happens in the book. Uh, do you remember when the gorillas were eating parts from the uh, the down Gubru yes. ship? They were chewing on it, yeah. They were chewing on it, right? Then Robert's like, what are you chewing on? And they go on to explain that, like, you know, the, this plant softened up the parts so the gorillas can chew on it, and it was all good, right? And then it gets mentioned, it doesn't get mentioned at all again until near the very end, where the Susan of Beam and Talon has just gone rogue, right? And then... There's a part where his his subordinates are like, we can't turn available. What's going on? Well, now they've all been infected with the, these spores from this plant that somehow traveled throughout all the, the ecosystem, which have now made all of our uh, ships unavailable and unusable. And yeah. I Isn't love it? that. I love the, the, the foreshadowing he did by talking about how Garth, to Red's very earliest point, was like this one gigantic organism, right? And then he kind of gives you the clues with the spores, but then he doesn't tell you at all what's going to happen or anything until it's actually done. So yeah, I he's, love he's the, very cute all the about that. that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say the the prison escape scene is perfectly foreshadowed by the scene where Fibbin goes into the bar, and it's when he first meets Sylvie. 
the thunder dance and everything goes out of control during the thunder dance and gets crazy and then he's climbing up following her up as she's leaving the bar and then he gets I never out. thought of that That's good. but it's yeah no it stood out very uh, probably cuz i read the two scenes the second i read the first and he scene said, and he said that like the only the only winning move is to cheat right yeah exactly and it's like a perfect and but it's not in your face it doesn't smack you when you read the prison scene but when you reread the book you see it yeah I was not expecting Sylvie to show back up in the book when I met her the first time, the first no, time I, I read this. Uh-huh. I was like, okay, we've got this Jim stripper. And that was an interesting character, I guess. Uh, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> and she and, um, oh no, another name, Galatia. I mean, Galet. Galet. Sorry, Kip. Gala work out like a basically a marriage contract and they didn't even consult Fibbin. They're just like, oh, you'll have sex with either one of us. So <laughs> <laughs> you're a, man. A, a leaf. A leaf, exactly. <laughs> I just want to say, you know, we always hear a lot about how poorly women are treated. I just want to say, hey, look, you know, Fibbin isn't treated exactly great. No, he's you'll not. Screw a leaf. Come on, come on. <laughs> I mean, no. I think it's, they're joking, but also it's kind of true. He's, he's he's not great either. Like he's <laughs> no, he is no, he not. is horrible at articulating what he wants and yeah, very yeah. offensive when he does it often. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's though so Galet made him uh, able to talk to Galactics, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll tell you somebody who I who I ended up being surprisingly sympathetic with. I was not expecting this at all this time around, but. It was a suzerain of propriety. Oh, he's he's been one of my favorites for a while. She. I, is she? Is he, she? What, was it he at the start or in oh, the middle? Okay. Was it he? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. It's very confusing. Well, <laughs> we never talked about that, by the way, about how their sex work. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I, I guess for me, like, it was earlier on in the book than I remembered because there was that little part where the suzerain of propriety realizes, crap, cost and caution. Yeah, he was the best of us. Like yep. we're we're yep. not going to succeed now. And I was like, wow, that it was such a fascinating thing for Bryn to put in there, and then to kind of express it, and then kind of move on. And you're like, wow, I actually feel some sympathy for these jerks. So let's go. I felt really sorry for the suzerain of propriety right after the suzerain of Beeman Talon got killed. It's not my favorite moment of the book, but it's a really poignant moment where it slowly sings to itself about the the triad that it will never have because one mm. of its mates is dead. Oh. And the whole idea of the Gubru putting basically the hope of their species on this one triumvirate, on this yeah. one little planet, which Cost and Caution thought it had in the bag because they'd done like all of their modeling to say that the only way that the Garth Triumvirate would be successful would be if cost and caution won primacy. That, and he I had mean, studied, it, it might have been right. Well, it, it, it had studied <laughs> the Earthlings. It had studied... And, yeah, it had studied the Earthlings. It was a bit of a reform movement. It was saying, okay, we've got to rethink the way that we think about the humans because right. they have value that we're not acknowledging. Right, and he had learned... English and we're and being he, blinded yeah yeah and when 
it died. I don't know if it was a he at the time, but when it died, it was still neuter. It was still neuter. And yep. it was like a weird, just a weird accident, weird explosion. Febin was, but it was winning. It, it was, was, it was, it was, it was on it was composition. Yep. Yeah, I know. And then like this weird, he just <laughs> happened to walk into a building that was getting bombed and they weren't even trying to kill him. It just, they happened. weren't even trying to blow it up. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. It they just blew even. up. <laughs> it was like, oops. And then, yeah. Yeah. But another thing that, that I wanted to bring up was that Bryn very, very carefully and the expansiveness of the universe by um, hinting at a few times machine species and hydrogen species and all these other species mm -hmm. that are completely separate and apart from the five galaxy species, right? The oxygen breathing species. And I love the way he did it just through it's a casual mention in the library here. Somebody mentions, hey, I was at this uh, diplomatic conference and there were these hydrogen breathers there. And there's no further explanation. They're just mentioned and they move on. And whoever's listening kind of goes, God, I wish I, I knew more about it. And it's like, yeah, that's yeah. it. That's all you get. Yep. And that's yep. all you get, right? And really? I love that's it. all you I get? I mean, I, mean, I it... mean, it's all we get in this book. Okay. Maybe there's more. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah, obviously... Read. Find out. <laughs> <laughs> and so here's something that Kip said to me in our chat, and I don't entirely buy. Why can't we have uterine replicators? I know we have IA, like civilizations that are IA. But I still don't understand why we can't have uterine re replicators. We clearly have the technology. If we're, I'm just saying, I think it's unfair. <laughs> the, pres the presumption has to be, and I I'm, just, I'm presuming this based off of what we know about the patron client species and the library and everything. The presumption has to be that they have tried using mechanisms other than natural birth and have found that the optimal method of uplifting a species is through natural birth that's uh, the only thing that would make sense given the library i don't i don't that's not that's not my presumption okay. my my presumption is that there's this central tenet of uplift that says that you can't alter a species so much that they can no longer give birth naturally i'm not saying we should get rid of uteruses no no that's no, no and and tied up in that like in that tenet of faith is because that is that is a tenet of faith like right okay there's no moral problem in like transitioning a species in over entirely into uterine replicators if that that technology works and is not too onerous to do but the the practical and moral thing given the morality of the five galaxies is that doing so would be unnatural and that making a species that like isn't perfectly fine giving natural birth is against the like biological oxygen breathing civilization. Okay, I guess I can buy that a little more. I still don't like it. I still think that because we it's like back semi to... it's semi Darwinist. Yeah, but so I guess part of what bothers me about it is that the white card female chimps have to give birth three times. And I'm like, that is, and I'm sorry, that's the third time. That's crappy. And why can't we do something to fix it to make it easier for physic, just even just physically easier, instead of just saying you have to have three babies? Well, they could make it physically easier. They can make it easier for uh, female chimpanzees to give birth if they want to. That 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 could be on the agenda. We don't know, right? Remember that that the neochims are 400 years into a hundred thousand year process, which. 
again, yeah. I don't think it takes a hundred thousand years to uplift the species because I mean, they, they make the point that the Kwaku are basically kind of doing stuff on their own, just under guru direction. And they're 50,000 years into the process, but anyways, but the guru still retain the right to meddle in their genetics for another yeah. 40,000 years. So I'm I mean, just saying, there's, a there's a definite implication that like, you're kind of incentivized to get your uplift done early in the 100,000 year period. Yep. And then you have the rest of the period to make use of them. Yep, that's exactly right. As opposed to taking the full 100,000 years to actually like slowly perfect them. I'm just saying, it's something that bothered me the whole book. I was yeah. like, this is not and, fair. And it, it and is it not should. fair. And it should. <laughs> yeah. and it, it upsets me because I know what it does to your body to be pregnant. Yeah. But um, th there is there is the like horrible moral point to say yes, like I, sorry the like eugenics point to say which is like if you're using uterine replicators you're not getting good data about how the species handles childbirth. Okay, I mean whatever. I'm just saying I, I I'm registering my which is horrible. But yeah, <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> like yeah. that is not a good moral argument. No, it's not. But I understand. I think I understand why. I don't agree with it though. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> no. get off my soul. Um, it's a stupid prejudice that galactic civilization has. Okay. That's it in my book. <laughs> well, we've been at this for two hours, boys. Okay. I just want to make one last cultural point. <laughs> I love how um, Bryn, one of the curse words that the uh, uh, chimpanzees use is, oh, Goodall. Yes, I love that. For Jane Goodall, I yep. love that. Like, you know, so. Anyways, I just thought that was just a very clever, clever way to differentiate the species going back to the linguistics point. So that's it. I did like that reference to human treasure, Jane Goodall. Yes. I, yeah, it was definitely great. Okay. Some quick rapid fire questions. Favorite species? Mine, Tim Brimmy. Athaclina and Uthacalding. Need I say more? Red. <laughs> Chimps. Fibbin and Max. Need I say more? <laughs> Era. Garflings. Garflings. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. And we've done favorite individuals. So I think we're good. I think so. Okay. Thank you, everybody, for joining us today. Uh, join us on the Discord, Reddit, Twitter, Patreon. Thank you, Horizon Brave, for starting this all. And thank you, Red, for reading this with Era and me. <laughs> <laughs> I know it can't be easy, but <laughs> thank God, you. I love you guys. <laughs> thank you for that. Oh. <laughs> I okay. Love it. Have a Goodbye, good Goodbye, everyone.